Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. And now, if you will turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 20. I love reading in Kings and Chronicles because there are great, great stories, and they're true stories, and you meet such rich and interesting personalities. You encounter petty arguments as well as massive wars, great faith, great fear, great sin, great obedience, great victories, great tragedy, and absolutely great lessons. We can learn a lot by looking at the victories and the failures of these Old Testament figures. And Ahab is one of the most interesting guys in Israel's history. Uh, And because we are keeping things short tonight, I won't go into his background very much, except to say that he was a king in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, this is in, and this was in the relatively early days of the divided kingdom. You remember when the monarchy began in Israel, uh, there was one Israel and one king. And then after the death of Solomon, the kingdom was split into two parts, the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, and two southern tribes. And there was some absorption and cross-pollination there, but we don't, certainly don't need to go into that. But the southern... Uh, kingdom of Judah and its capital in Jerusalem, the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital in Samaria. And this is where Ahab was in the northern kingdom. And all those northern kings were bad. And as I said before, some were worse than others, and Ahab was worse than almost all of them. It specifically says in the text that he was the first one, the worst one by far up to this point. So he's not a good guy, and he reigned for 22 years relatively long for the northern kingdom. And even though this was early in the northern kingdom, uh, while the southern kingdom, they had good kings and bad kings. Most of them were bad, but some of them were good. But it was all one line. It was a dynasty, all right, beginning with David. And in the northern kingdom, they went off the rails right off the bat. And so we are already, by the time we get to Ahab, five or six kings in, I think, and at least three dynasties in. They've already jumped uh, bloodlines and everything all over the place. So anyway, for all of his badness, he had some good qualities. And I see some things in him. God saw some things in him, I believe. And I have often thought over the years that the number one problem, the biggest mistake Ahab made, and the thing that he did that cost him the most and turned him the worst was that he married the wrong woman. And I don't say that as a joke. I'm not saying that all his problems were his wife's fault, but Jezebel was an awful, awful woman. And he married her. You can read all about those two in the surrounding chapters. But just to set the stage for what we're going to look at tonight, this much has already happened. And most of this you'll be familiar with, or at least a lot of it. Ahab is king. He is married to a prominent worshiper of Baal. She is uh, descended from the Baal priesthood, as a matter of fact. He has officially, because of this marriage, he has recognized and endorsed Baal worship in Israel. Elijah has declared a drought. 
and has confronted and defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. All this has already happened. He has fled for his life after Jezebel's threats. He has heard the still small voice of God, and he has anointed a new king for Syria, a new king for Israel, and he has also already thrown his mantle over Elisha. He's chosen his own successor. And now, while Elijah is still on the scene, and all this stuff is in the past, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, has his foot on Israel's neck. Israel has a very small army. This is, again, the northern kingdom. They are not strong, and they are under Syria's uh, power and authority. And the king has laid some very uh, onerous demands on Ahab. I want all your silver. I want all your gold. I want all your best women. And uh, Ahab says, okay. Well, he accedes to these demands. And then Ben-Hadad thought, well, that's easy. And he ups the ante. He says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to send a bunch of people to your neighborhood, and they're just going to be able to walk into your houses and, and take whatever they want. And he says, well, here's what he says. In 1 Kings chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you sent for your servant to do the first time, I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. I'm going to come to Samaria, I'm going to knock it down and take so much with me. Uh, it's, there's going to be so little left. And my army's going to be so big that my army will be lucky to carry a handful of dust home with us. So the king of Israel answered and said, and I love this, it's one of Ahab's shining moments. Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. He, he calls this bluff. He says, you talk big and you talk scary, but you, we haven't fought yet. So dial it down, game on, whatever. And so they're getting ready to go to war, and a prophet comes to him, a man of God, and encourages him with word of victory. Go out, and uh, God's going to deliver him into your hand. He says, well, who's going to do it? Well, these guys are. He says, well, who's going to set the battle order? He said, you are. So he's encouraged, and they go out, and they win big time. Said so they, they sent a, a group out, and Ben-Hadad says, uh, he gets word that they're coming. He says, well, they might be on a peace mission. If they are, take them alive. If they're coming out for war, just kidnap them. Don't kill them. Bring them alive anyway. And every person that went out to meet the Israelites got killed. It says every man killed his man. So every time there was a one-on-one -on -one matchup, the Israelis were victorious, and they were so encouraged by that that they routed them. They chased them. It said they killed them with a very great slaughter, and Ben-Hadad escapes into his hideout. And then the Syrians, the advisors the, to the king say, well, here's why that happened, king. You see, their gods are the god of the hills, and that's where we were fighting. What we've got to do is move the battle down to the plains where our gods are stronger, and then we'll be victorious. And then another prophet came and said, still in chapter 20, now in verse 28, so then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, listen, let me back up here for a second. This is all about the time, uh, 
more within a few years of, of when Asa was king in Judah. You've heard of King Asa and Jehoshaphat. They both had similar situations, and their reigns were right, right next to each other, where they went out and faced a superior army, but they sought the Lord. What shall we do? And in Jehoshaphat's famous case, he says, you put the praise team out front, and you, see, you, you talk about the beauty of holiness and the mercy of God, and I'm going to fight this battle for you. Ahab didn't do this. Ahab wasn't seeking God's face. He doesn't say, oh no, what do I do, Lord? They're setting themselves in battle array. And by the way, it gives a description that the armies of Israel sat out in the field in this plain like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. You've got a massive Syrian army, two little companies or battalions or whatever of Israelis, and, but they're getting ready to fight. And again, Ahab is not seeking God. So listen, the wording of this prophet is, is uh, very important. Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand. Listen, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Why doesn't he say they will know that I am the Lord? Well, they are going to know. But interesting that he phrases it that way. First of all, I'm not doing this for you. I'm not doing this because you sought my help. I was just insulted. How dare they think that I'm only the God of the hills. So I'm going to show them something. And in the process, I'm going to show you something. Verse 29, and they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city. Then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an inner chamber. Now, again, what just happened is a massive Syrian army was routed and destroyed <clears throat> um, by, this, uh, by this tiny Israeli army. And Ben-Hadad is done, man. He wants no part of it. He's not going to listen to any... Well, maybe... If we fight him on the water, he doesn't want any more war counsel. He just wants to sue for peace. He wants to save his neck is what he wants. And now the servants advise him. They say, you know what the uh, kings of Israel are famous for is mercy. If you just go there and just humbly ask for mercy, you might get it. And it might be your only hope. So Ben-Hadad goes before Ahab and bargains for his life. He says, hey, these cities that my father took from you guys all those years ago, I'm going to give them back. They're yours. And I'm going to open up the marketplaces. We're going to clear some spots for you in Damascus, this very prosperous, uh, industrious city. And it's going to be like it was in the old days. You guys can come and do business in Damascus. All you got to do is let me live. And Ahab enters into this treaty with Ben-Hadad. He says, okay, and lets him go. Then there's a really weird story. Uh, but it boils down to this. Another prophet confronts him. Uh, you can read it in, at the end of chapter 20. But it's the one where the prophet says to another prophet or a prophet in training says, hey, uh, hit me. You remember this? And the prophet says, I'm not going to hit you. He says, because you didn't obey the word of the Lord as soon as you leave, a lion's going to eat you or kill you. And he does. And then he turns to another guy and says, you hit me. And the guy hits him and <laughs> wounds him. But anyway, he does all this so he can be sitting by the side of the road, bandaged and disguised when Ahab comes by, and he, and he confronts him and tells him that 
God had appointed Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, for utter destruction. And because Ahab had let him go, had not sought the word of the Lord, look, what, look at what Syria was trying to do. He shouldn't let this guy live. Not in that culture, not in that time, not under, not under those circumstances. Ben-Hadad should have been killed. And if he had even listened, tried to get God's word on this, he would have known better. But he let him go. And he says, because you let him go, it's going to be your life for his. You're done. Verse 43 then, after he gets this word, it says, and they're still in chapter 20. So the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and displeased, and came to Samaria. Now the next thing, the very next thing is he does, uh, that, that happens is he tries to buy a vineyard that's adjacent to his property. You remember this, Naboth's vineyard? Uh, this man, Naboth, who owns a vineyard, refuses on the ground that it is ancestral land. It's been handed down in his family. According to the Mosaic law, he shouldn't sell it. He can't sell it. And Ahab starts sulking. I mean, he goes into a deep funk. Why? Because of the vineyard? Eh. You remember, he was already what? He was uh, displeased and sullen. He was in a bad mood. And here's the thing. And there's examples of this all through Scripture. But when the prophet laid the bad news on Ahab, I mean, it's pretty bad news. Your kingdom's going to come to an end. You're going to die. Uh, Jezebel's going to die uh, because of this. Maybe, just maybe, he should have considered repenting. Maybe while the prophet is there, say, is this definitely what's going to happen? Or is it what's going to happen if I don't change my ways? It's kind of like Christmas Carol. Tell me, oh spirit, are these things written in stone? Are these things that are going to happen? Or can they be changed? He, uh, I'm not putting Dickens on the same level as the Bible, you understand. But it's, uh, it's one of the reasons I love that movie. It's, there's so many good parallels there. But he doesn't. He doesn't repent. He doesn't try to set things right. He doesn't try to change anything. What does he do? He decides, what can I do to cheer myself up? He looks for distraction. So he looks out his window. He's walking around the grounds. And he says, you know what I need? You know what would make me happy? You know what would take, off, take my mind off this curse that's just been pronounced on me? A vegetable garden. And this is exactly what he tells Naboth. This would make a perfect vegetable garden for my house. And since it's right here, why don't you let me have it? I'll give you a better one at another place, or I can just give you money for this. He says, I, I just can't. This is, this is land that has belonged to my family down through the ages. He said, God forbid it. So he goes deeper into this funk, and then here comes Jezebel. And she comes in. Why are you so upset, baby? What's wrong, baby? I love when Keith Moore tells this story. I do for you. Want me to make you some of that Kool-Aid like you like? Now she, uh, she, <laughs> she said, what's wrong? He says, oh, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. What are you talking about? Oh, that's the, that, I want it for a garden over there, and he just, he won't let me have it. And Jezebel says, for crying out loud, you are the king. Cheer up. Don't do anything. I will deliver the vineyard to you. I'll take care of everything. Baby. So she does, and long story short, she solves this problem by having Naboth murdered. 
she frames him for the crime of all things of blasphemy against God and the king. So they stone him. Now, this is all done by Jezebel. How aware of it Ahab was in the moment, we don't know. All we know is that Jezebel comes in and says, your, uh, your neighbor over there, Naboth, he's dead. And he doesn't say, well, isn't it interesting? What a coincidence that he dies just about the time you tell me you're going to give me his vineyard. What do we do now? Well, he doesn't question this. He doesn't wonder about it. He doesn't investigate. He just goes and takes possession of the vineyard. And then Elijah confronts him. Not just a man of God, not just a prophet, but Elijah confronts him. Tells him he knows about Naboth. Says, what have you done now? Murdered a guy so you could take his land? And he prophesies his impending death. Listen, that had already been prophesied, but this time he says, I'm also going to destroy your posterity. Meaning, it's not just you that's going to die. None of your children will inherit the throne. Your dynasty is over. And this is huge. This is a bigger deal than we could probably get our heads around. Jezebel, too, gives a very graphic description of how they are going to end their days. And uh, it says here in uh, chapter 21, verse 25, listen to this. This is why I said what I said about uh, the mistake he made. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up or incited him. She was behind most of his bad calls, bad decisions. Now look though, look down, skip a verse and go down to verse 27. So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Now, don't sweat that last part. His son has it coming by the time it comes to him. And God knew that. All I want you to see for tonight, all the lessons that are woven in there, all I want you to see is look, look at how merciful God is to Ahab the worst king up to this point, and one of the worst of all time, all he had to do was go into this morning, humble himself before God. And God said, doesn't even specifically say that he's praying, that he's seeking God, but he does finally take an attitude, a posture of repentance, and God just tells Elijah, I'm not going to do what I said I'm going to do, not to him. What if he had humbled himself when he was first confronted by the prophet <clears throat> that, that prophesied his death? <clears throat> what if he'd have said, oh no, this is really worth repenting over? If he had, for, number one, Naboth would have survived. He wouldn't have been in that funk. He might have established a somewhat righteous dynasty. He might have experienced a moment of mercy of God that changed his life, changed his priorities. But who had his ear? God the prophets, Jezebel. A couple of takeaways, and then I close. First takeaway, young people, single people, pay attention. After the most important decision of your life, the most important of your decision in life is what? Making Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. Number two, easily number two is who you marry. You will have many relationships in your life. 
many friendships, many vertical relationships, horizontal relationships. I mean, we're talking peers and we're talking superiors, depending on where you, uh, where life takes you and your education and your work. But, and, and they all have potential to benefit you, to draw you closer to God or to pull you further away from God. But there is only one relationship that the Bible says becomes one flesh. You become one flesh with your spouse. Men, think, consult, seek counsel, and pray about your wife-to-be. Women, pray, seek counsel, think hard about the man you want to marry. It is better by far to remain single than settle for somebody who is going to shipwreck your walk in the Spirit. Okay? But my main point is this. When you are down and out, or maybe just down, and you're down because you blew it, you are well aware of your sin, and you're aware maybe because somebody confronted you. Maybe somebody's trying to hold you accountable. Maybe you're aware of it because your conscience is eating you alive. You feel guilty. You're convicted. And your guilt is real. What do you do? Most of us have been there. What do you do? Do you seek restoration? And when? Or do you pout and seek distraction? Do you determine to repent and obey? Or do you ignore it and seek something just to take your mind off of it so that you don't feel guilty? I'll watch a little TV. I'll do some online shopping. I'll go out with friends. I'll do anything other than confront this sin, this guilt. Praise and worship team, I'm going to ask you to come back up here just for a little bit. Is, is that all right? Do we have a song we can go out with? Don't lose any time setting your accounts right with God. He is merciful. His grace is sufficient and this is the really good news. Stand up with me. We live on the other side of the cross from the side that Ahab lived on. He, he got into sackcloth and ashes and mourning, not knowing what God was going to say, what the word was going to be, if anything was going to change. We live on this side of the cross where we don't have to wonder because God has already made provision for forgiveness and restoration through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So, a couple things. First of all, is there anybody in here who is not in that relationship with Jesus Christ? Because even though we are forgiven, even though we are saved, our conscience still is part of, uh, part of our spiritual heritage it's there, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through our conscience to convict us when we are blowing it, when we are drifting, when we are sinning, so that we can repent, get things right, get back on track. We don't have to worry about going to hell, but we do have to worry about being right with God or concern ourselves with that. Uh, for the person who has not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's again, you're in a much more dire situation. Uh, without making that confession of faith, you are going to hell you got more to, be, more to worry about than just feeling, feeling guilty in this life. We are all guilty until we cast that guilt, cast that sin over onto Jesus Christ who says, I've already borne it on the cross. you just got to receive this forgiveness, this gift of forgiveness and eternal life from me. 
So if there is anybody who needs to make that decision tonight, or if you just want to ask me some questions about it, please, while they're singing, come up here. Come up and ask your question if you want, or you can talk to me later. But if you want to give your heart to Christ and make sure it's right, do it tonight. Don't lose any time. Don't waste any time doing that. Everybody else, as we sing, perhaps, check your heart. And if there's something you've been putting off, a sin you haven't dealt with, deal with it. Cast it over on him, confess it, and leave it in the past. Get that restoration that is your birthright. God is not the one up there saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm mad at you. Just let me be mad for a while. He's like, forgiveness is here, but you've got to acknowledge it. You've got to come to me. Just make it right. It's the most important thing you can do is keep your accounts clean with God. Amen? And all, all the work's done. We don't owe him anything. He's paid it all. We just have to acknowledge. Amen? Let me pray. And then when I'm done praying, we can go out with a song. And during that song, come up here and let me pray with you if, you if you need to do that tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for recording the lives of these men, the great ones, the good ones, the evil ones, so that we can learn, so we can see. We learn from their mistakes or follow their examples. And thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. Thank you for the still, small voice that still speaks Reveals, your, reveals you to us, guides us in our steps, and by your kindness, Lord, we are brought to repentance. Just ask that you shine your light into our lives and show us if there's anything that needs tightened up, anything that needs to be laid down, that you would give us the humility, all of us, the humility and the wisdom to get ourselves right with you to lay aside the sin and the weights that encumber us in these last days. And I pray especially right now for anyone in the sound of my voice who has not made Jesus Christ their Lord, who has not received that free gift of eternal life, that you would convict them above all of that need and grant them, grant them the faith and the grace and the wisdom to receive that gift tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.